Good morning. Welcome to First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We are a spiritual community dedicated to the free search for truth, meaning, and beauty, and these days an open parking spot. I'm Chris Jimerson. I'm Minister for Program Development here at the church, and I have with me Bill Phillips, your wonderful lay leader this morning, and we welcome each and every one of you here. We come from a long tradition of seeing a spark of the divine in every person, and it's in that tradition that I invite you to turn to those around you and greet the holy among us this morning. It is also our tradition in Unitarian Universalist churches to begin our services by lighting a chalice, which is one of the symbols of our faith. Please join me in saying our words for lighting the chalice, which are printed in your order of service. Love is the spirit of this church, and service is its law. This is our great covenant, to dwell together in peace, to seek the truth in love, and to help one another. Our call to worship this morning was written by the Reverend Chris Jimerson. Blessed Imperfection. Come, though we know we will fail one another and make mistakes, so too will we forgive. So too will we support and uphold one another. Come. Though we know we will sometimes be unable to reach our highest aspirations, so too will we reach mightily together toward those aspirations. So too will we sometimes surprise ourselves by exceeding our wildest expectations together. Come as together we hold up our values and ethical principles, knowing we will make mistakes, but also knowing we will return again and again to those values and principles. Come into this beloved religious community. Come, let us worship together. Unitarian Universalism is a pluralistic faith, We draw from all of the world's wisdom and faith traditions. We don't have a creed, a set of beliefs that we all have to sign up for. So sometimes people ask us what holds us together. Well, for this church, we have a set of values. And out of those values, about seven years ago, arose our mission statement. Many of you know that we are about to begin living into a slightly new version of that mission statement. More on that later in this service. But for now, this has served us the last seven years. It has guided all of our decisions and all of our ministries. So let's say it together this morning. We gather in community to nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice. Our meditation reading this morning was written by Valerie Cower on revolutionary love. Revolutionary love is a wellspring of care, an awakening to the inherent dignity and beauty of others and the earth, a quieting of the ego, a way of moving through the world in relationship, asking, what is your story? What is at stake? What is my part in your flourishing? 
loving others, even our opponents, in this way has the power to sustain political, social, and moral transformation. This is how love changes the world. Love calls us to look upon the faces of those different from us as brothers and sisters. Love calls us to weep when their bodies are outcast, broken, or destroyed. Love calls us to speak even when our voice trembles. Stand even when hate spins us out of control. And stay even when the blood is fresh on the ground. Love makes us brave. The world needs your love. The only social, political, and moral force that can dismantle injustice to remake the world around us and within us. To pursue a life of revolutionary love is to walk boldly into the hot winds of the world with a saint's eyes and a warrior's heart. And pour our body, breath, and blood into others. I'd like to invite you now to join me in a meditation on loving kindness. If you're sitting next to friends, family, loved ones, and would like to join hands, you're welcome to do so. I invite you to close your eyes and simply breathe. Breathe in, breathe out. Try to focus yourself on your breath flowing in and flowing out, in and out. And as you become centered on your breathing, feel the warmth and energy of those around you, breathing in and out. And now, still centered in your breathing, I invite you to bring to mind someone whom you love, who you have very warm feelings toward. They could be a spouse, partner, child, parent or other family member, a friend or other loved one. And as you hold them in your thoughts and continue to stay centered in your breathing, join me in sending them this wish. May you be well. May you experience loving kindness. May you be free from suffering. May you know joy and pure Love. Continuing your breathing now, I invite you to bring to mind someone you may feel more neutral about. Perhaps a co-worker you haven't gotten to know very well, or a new neighbor. Breathe in. Breathe out. Visualize them and send them this 
wish. May you be well. May you experience loving kindness. May you be free from suffering. May you know joy and pure love. I invite you now to bring to mind someone with whom you have difficulty. Someone perhaps with whom you are having conflict or that you feel a need to forgive. I invite you to visualize this person and breathing in and breathing out, send them this wish. May you be well. May you experience loving kindness. May you be free from suffering. May you know joy and pure love. Finally, I invite you to bring into your awareness an image of yourself. Perhaps it is your whole self, or perhaps it is a part of you that has been hurt or that needs healing. Breathing in, And breathing out, hold yourself in your awareness and send yourself this wish. May I be well. May I experience loving kindness. May I be free from suffering. May I know joy and pure Love. Invite you now to continue concentrating on your breathing as we enter into a moment of silence, remembering that human sounds and the sounds of small children are a part of the silence in this congregation. Breathing together, let us enter that sacred silence together.
The book, Moral Disengagement, How People Do Harm and Live with Themselves, addresses some really, really fascinating and important subject matter in just about the most pedantic and tedious of ways possible. (laughs) Now, in all fairness, Benjamin Franklin, my dog, seems to really like the book. In fact, he found it quite tasty. (laughs) Anyway... This morning, I've tried to engage in an act of loving kindness for you all by reading some of it and closely skimming the rest so that you don't have to. I'll try to share with you the top-level overview. Each of us develop a set of moral principles, ethical values in life that, among other things, most often involves the avoidance of doing harm to others. Our ethics are handed down to us through the societies in which we live, our families, admired figures and the like, as well as through our own life experiences, our thinking about our morality, and our emotional reactions to seeing how our behavior affects other people. These ethics are then enforced and reinforced by legal and societal sanctions and rewards. However... We also have moral agency. We self-monitor our behavior for consistency with our morals. And unless we're sociopathic, we feel bad when we harm other people. So, how is it then that people sometimes do really terrible things or allow them to be done in our name using our tax dollars? Well, social cognitive research has discovered a number of ways in which we as individuals and, in fact, entire groups or societies give up our moral agency, disengage from our ethical values, allow ourselves to do harm to others without losing our sense of moral integrity. Now, we human beings are almost infinitely creative, so bear with me now as I walk you through the amazing number of ways we have come up with to violate our own moral standards and not feel the least bit bad about it. Number one, moral justification. We justify conduct that's harmful to others by convincing ourselves it has a larger moral society, societal or economic purpose. Going to war in Iraq was justified by the threat of weapons of mass destructions and terrorism, neither of which, it turns out, were in the country before we invaded it. Tobacco companies at one time excused advertising cigarettes to children as their effort to uphold freedom of speech. Next, euphemistic labeling. Using language that sanitizes the consequences of our actions or even disguises them as something else. So, children that get killed in a bombing raid get called collateral damage. Terrorists assume the label of freedom fighters. The gun industry repackages assault weapons as modern tactical sporting rifles. Next. Advantageous comparison, justifying inhumanities through either comparison to even greater moral atrocities or by conflating them with higher principles and or revered persons who have exhibited moral courage. 
pesticide companies once justified the negative public health consequences of their products by comparing that with the greater number of people who were dying in automobile accidents. One former president of the National Rifle Association gave a speech in which she compared advocating for the ability to carry assault weapons to Susan B. Anthony's fight for women's voting rights and Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King's struggle for civil rights. Because being able to carry an automatic rifle is just the same as having your basic human rights. Next, displacement of responsibility. Excusing one's own detrimental actions by claiming a lack of agency for them, that one is subject to the dictates of some greater authority. For instance, soldiers just carrying out a superior's orders without questioning them. In a similar way, we also diffuse responsibility. This is where we diffuse our own individual responsibility for immoral behavior into that of a group with whom we are participating in such behavior together. When the death penalty is administered by lethal injection, for instance, the placement of the IVs, the strapping down of different areas of the inmate's body, the attachment of the monitoring equipment, the pushing of each of the plungers to deliver each of the different drugs, every single one of these separate tasks are subdivided to different people so that no one has to feel responsible for the death. Next, misrepresentation of injurious consequences. Minimizing, disregarding or even disputing the harmful effects of one's actions. The biggest example I think of now is denying global warming or that it is caused by humans. Yeah. Attribution of blame. This one to me is so insidious. This is perceiving the victim of injurious conduct as somehow being responsible for their own mistreatment. Blaming African-American teenagers shot by police for their own deaths because of some minor crime they committed or that they just didn't act respectful enough. And finally, the really, really big one, dehumanization. Stripping others of human qualities, viewing them as less than human, disengages our feeling of moral responsibility to act in just ways toward them. This is exactly what allowed the great evil of slavery in our country. It is at least in part what still underlies racism and all of the other isms that continue to thrive in America today. So... These are the ways that we justify acting unjustly. Now, whether or not you can see yourselves in any of the specific examples I just used to illustrate them, I do think we can easily fall prey to one or more of these same mechanisms of moral disengagement from our own ethical standards. And because these mechanisms are not always operating within our consciousness, they can far too easily allow us to turn away from, to block from our awareness, systems in our societal and government structures that oppress and do great harm. We can too easily allow injustices to be done in our name and in with our tax dollars. So... 
How do we guard against these forms of moral disengagement? How do we recognize and confront systems that do great harm when we are a part of those very same systems? Well, this congregation is beginning to live into a new version of our mission, which I mentioned earlier. And within that new mission, I believe, lies at least part of the answer to these questions. The new mission is really more of an extension, a logical next step to the mission we read together earlier. It goes like this. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Together, we nourish souls transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. That's right. That's what we're going to do. I believe that doing these things together, living our lives in this way, working to help build the beloved community, is how we stay morally engaged. It's how we proactively call ourselves back to our highest ethical values and re-engage when inevitably we will sometimes fall short of them. Now, the term beloved community, as we use it in the new mission and as I am using it today, has a specific meaning and context handed down to us by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. It is the vision he left to us as described by the King Center for Nonviolent Social Change. That description happens to be on the top of page three of your order of service. I'm going to invite you to turn to that. Give you a little time to find it at the top of page three. And then I invite you to read along with me. Dr. King's beloved community is a global vision in which all people can share in the wealth of the earth. In the beloved community, poverty, hunger, and homelessness will not be tolerated because international standards of human decency will not allow it. Racism and all forms of discrimination, bigotry, and prejudice will be replaced by an all-inclusive spirit of sisterhood and brotherhood. In the beloved community, international disputes will be resolved by peaceful conflict resolution and reconciliation of adversaries instead of military power. Love and trust will triumph over fear and hatred. Peace with justice will prevail over war and military conflict. So, the love in this meaning of beloved community is not an easy, not a shallow, not a hallmark moment kind of a love. Valerie Kaur, whose words Bill just read, is an activist, filmmaker, and founding director of the Revolutionary Love Project. And she says that we must engage in a radical kind of love, indeed a revolutionary love, in order to build the beloved community. Bringing feminist and womanist perspectives to the concept of beloved community, she says that revolutionary love, quote, is not just a feeling, but a form of sweet labor, fierce, bloody, imperfect, and life-giving. 
It is love as an action. Love that we engage in even knowing it will be difficult and challenging sometimes and that we will make mistakes and yet knowing that we must recommit to it and keep re-engaging in acts of sweet labor over and over and over again. It is a revolutionary love that calls us to mobilize, to take action that calls us to our highest ethical standards. Core describes three key practices for living out revolutionary love. Number one, love for others. We must see no strangers. We must adopt a fundamental vision of our interconnectedness. I must view you as a part of me that I have not yet met. We must develop curiosity when encountering difference. And that can be harder than it seems. Neuroscience has found that we may be hardwired in the more ancient parts of our brains to have an initial reaction of fear or even repulsion when we encounter someone who looks and acts differently than us. But, but we don't have to let that initial reaction dictate our behavior. If we then engage our frontal cortex by getting curious about this other person, we can change this emotional dynamic. I wonder who she loves in her life. I wonder what pain and suffering he has endured. I wonder what that group over there does for fun sometimes. Asking ourselves these and other curious questions can help us humanize the other. It can help us reach out and find common ground. Perhaps more importantly, though, it can help us to begin to value difference. We can do more together, grow more as human beings, not despite our differences, but by embracing them. Like the players in a jazz band or the individual ingredients in a Cajun gumbo, we each have distinctiveness to add that combined together don't melt away, but instead help create a greater whole. And my beloveds, In this, our current social situation, our ability to love the other becomes even more important. We have to be willing to exercise this love on behalf of folks who have far less privilege than we do and who are often in harm's way these days. Second, she says we have to tend the wound. That means we have to practice loving even those with whom we disagree even those who would harm us. It's hard. We have to see their wounds, see them as human and fragile. As Kaur says it, they hurt us because they don't know how else to deal with their own wound. This is really, really hard labor, and how to do it is going to be the subject of an upcoming sermon. But for now, for now, I want to point out one thing. This isn't just the moral way to behave. This is wise tactic. This is wise strategy. In any social movement, we are far more successful if we go after systems instead of the individuals that are trapped within those very same systems. Finally, she says, breathe and push. She says... Our sweet labor must include 
loving ourselves. And that this is the love that we so often tend to the very least. To sustain our engagement in the work of living our moral values, to love others with a revolutionary love, we must tend to ourselves. And this isn't just individualistic self-care. We need the loving care we find within community. We need connection and belonging such as that to be found within this religious community. We need to experience beauty and joy with others. We need others who will tend to us and pick up the burden for a while when we are the one who has been injured. We need beloved community for ourselves. So, these are how we practice a revolutionary love. How together we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. Revolutionary love can move us to dismantle systems of oppression that do harm in our names and build the beloved community in their place. And folks, we need to have that revolutionary love more than ever. We need revolutionary love to transform a global economic system that benefits the very few over the great many and is endangering the very life on our planet. We need a revolutionary love that creates a system that prioritizes people and life itself over profits and wealth accumulation and by doing so builds the beloved community. We need a revolution, a revolution that addresses the root cause of the devaluation and dehumanization that make the Me Too and Time's Up movements necessary, that continue to result in women receiving less pay than men for doing the very same jobs. We need revolutionary love to bust up the patriarchy and build the beloved community in its place. We need a revolutionary love to stand up to an executive branch that is not only systematically reversing rules and procedures that had been put into place to protect the rights of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer people, but within some branches is actually putting into place rules and procedures that will make it legal to discriminate against us. We need revolutionary love to bring LGBTQ folks fully into the beloved community. We need, we need revolutionary love to dismantle a private for-profit prison system, including our immigration detention system. A system that treats black and brown bodies as commodities, often forcing them into labor for little or no pay, recreating indentured servitude and slavery in the United States. We need revolutionary love to replace that system and build the beloved community. And even more... Even more, my friends, we must have a revolutionary love that dismantles a culture of white supremacy and Christian hegemony that leads to the abuse of people of other faith and continues to drive extremely harmful disparities in education, health care, voting rights, incarceration rates, housing, income, police brutality, arrest rates, and on and on and on for people of color. Thank you.
We must, we must engage in a revolutionary love that will not rest, will not stop, will not give up until it dismantles these systems that are draining us all of our humanity and replaces them once and for all with that beautiful, beloved community. Revolutionary love is where we may find the strength to remain morally engaged against these and other forms of systemic harm. Revolutionary love is how we instead create systems that make it possible for each and every one of us to live out our full human potential. And these, these systems of health, not harm, are the foundation upon which we build the dream, that dream of beloved community. I hold a revolutionary love for this faith and for this church and the people who bring it into being. And I have no doubt, no doubt, that we can, together, nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice and build that Beloved community. Amen. Please join me in saying our words for extinguishing the chalice. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we hold in our hearts until we are together again. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.